Uh, well, wanted to wrap up this series, The Essentials, that we have been in over the last uh, month. Uh, we had a little bit of an interruption last week for Life Day. How many of you enjoyed Life Day? You know, just the opportunity to celebrate baptism and child dedication and our new members. Two claps, that's amazing. Like, we're excited. Yeah. I know it's, it's always that tense moment of like, am I supposed to clap? And then the first person goes and they're like, I guess I wasn't supposed to. It's okay. But we can always celebrate the good things that God is doing. And that's what Life Day is all about. And I'm so glad that we had a chance to do that last week. Um, I, I got to tell you, like as a pastor, there are a couple of things that are like the pinnacle of being allowed to be a pastor. And one of them is baptizing people, leading people to Jesus, saying, you know, the sinner's prayer, all of that, discipling them. Uh, but it really just an awesome thing to experience that together. Uh, but we're going to finish this week uh, with our essential series as we tar- started talking about at the very beginning. There's a lot in the Bible, and there's probably a lot of it that's like, I just can't know all of it. And we've been trying to utilize this series. What are the things you really need to know? These are the essential ideas through Scripture that if you can capture these ideas will really help you not only to know Scripture, but more importantly, be able to share with other people. Um, you might not be able to name all the kings of Israel, all right? You might not even be able to name all 12 disciples or the 12 tribes of Israel, any of those things. It's not, it's not just our knowledge that leads people to Jesus, but you can get into some of these essential ideas. And so we started at the beginning with God created perfection. We broke it. God uses broken people and God has a plan. He's working a redemptive plan for us. But today we're going to kind of go into this last part. And I know if we're looking through the Bible, we would have to take like the next nine to 10 years to just talk about Jesus. Because how many of you know Jesus is a topic of his own that you just can't get enough of? right? And, but as a church, we've learned probably the most about Jesus. So uh, I'm not saying we're just going to skip over that. Uh, but I think there's a really important part that is not just about the ministry of Jesus, but where do we fit into this story that needs to be concluded? And this is essential idea. And so what we're going to look at here is the time at the end of Jesus ministry. And he's sharing his last words with his disciples called the great commission. You ever hear the great commission before? So this is what we're going to read. This is in Matthew chapter 28. If you have a Bible, you can follow with us. Uh, There are Bibles in the pews, and Matthew is about the middle of your Bible, page 828, if you don't know where that is, and we'll also have it available for you on the screen. But I want to look at these words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, the significance of them, and why this is essential for us. So in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, it says this, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is when we transition from the ministry of Jesus into the ministry of the apostles. All right? They started out as disciples. Now, a disciple is someone who is learning, right? They're learning from Jesus. They're in relationship with Jesus. They spent about three years walking side by side with Jesus, watching him do amazing things. They watched him go to the cross. They've seen him raised from the dead. And now they're being given a commission, okay? It's just how we would do kind of in, you know, the military does this as well. You go through training and then you are commissioned. That's when you become like an officer to go out and to do and to lead. They are being commissioned as apostles. And what's really awesome that we don't want to miss here is Jesus starts off this commissioning statement to them by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I am giving it to you and sending you out. 
I am sending you out as the, the answer to the world. And I don't want us to miss this because it's something I think we can easily look over just because of where we're at in history, all right? Think of it in these terms. Israel is a very tiny country. I mean, if you've seen a map of Israel, even Israel in Jesus' time was not very big. We have Jesus who comes on the scene and is the Son of God, pays for the, you know, the sins of the world, dies on the cross, and raises from the dead. He brings in a group of people that he's leading, 12 disciples, right? And we, he, he commissions them to go out into the world. And the work that they are empowered to do to this point in time spans generations, thousands of years, and a church today that is globally reaching 2.2 billion people. Think about that for a second. I mean, the magnitude and, and the level of improbability of that being able to happen, if not for the power of God at work, and we're going to explore that here in just a second, is just unbelievable. But by the power of God, it's happened, right? And here's where we are. So how many apostles were there? Nope. 11. Somebody was paying attention. Let me introduce you to the, 12, the 11 apostles. You'll think there were 12, but I'll show you why here in just a second. Because each of these apostles had something that they had to face, and a lot of them have one thing in common. I want to show you what it is, all right? So we have Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. He was martyred in India. Philip, who was martyred in Egypt. John was the lucky apostle, okay? John, according to tradition, is said to have been covered in tar and burned with tar and then just marooned on an island for the rest of his life, covered in boils and, and scars. Okay, so he's the lucky one. Then we have James the Lesser, martyred in Rome. Andrew, martyred in Greece. Peter, martyred in Rome. Thomas, martyred in India. Matthew, also known as Levi, martyred in Ethiopia. James the Greater, martyred in Rome. Judas Thaddeus, martyred in Beirut. And Simon the Zealot, martyred somewhere in and around the England area. Judas Iscariot was a disciple. He betrayed Jesus and ended up taking his own life before the season of the apostles. These are the men that God commissions. Now, I want to tell you something about these, these young men that probably, I know I had never thought about this before. It was something that was shared to me uh, with our district youth director of the Pennsylvania Delaware District. And here's what he said. Look at these young men. Of the 12 disciples, the Bible tells us that one of them is married, Peter. Okay, he has a wife. The rest of them, we have no record of them being married whatsoever. The only way that could happen, culturally speaking, in that time period, is that they are so young, they've not yet reached the age of getting married. Translation, they're teenagers. God sends his son to the world, and his son goes out and commissions 12 people to come work for him, and he chooses 12 teenagers who are not yet married, right? And even at the time of his uh, ascension into heaven, we're talking three years later, they're still, at the very least, young adults that he's saying, you're the ones that I'm commissioning. Go into the world, preach the gospel, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be with you always. Get this thing moving and going. Now, all of these young men saw Jesus, experienced his goodness, saw his death on the cross, witnessed his resurrection, and went on to tell the whole world about the goodness of God. And here's something that I love, and I'm going to introduce you to somebody in just a second, that this proves that Jesus truly is the Son of God. How many of you have ever heard of a man, if you're under the age of 50, you probably haven't. How many of you have ever heard of a man named Chuck Colson? 
couple of you don't want to admit you're over 50. It's okay. We still love you. We have a 50-plus ministry. Come on, like classics here. Uh, you've probably heard of Chuck Colson. If you're under the age of 50, how many of you are under the age of 50? You're like, I've never heard of Chuck Colson in my life. That's fair. Okay, it's all right. Uh, how many of you have heard of Watergate? Okay, you probably heard of that. That's part of your history lesson, right? Uh, Watergate back in the 70s. Believe it or not, even 50 years ago, there were bad things happening in politics. It's hard to imagine, but back then there were some bad things going on. I won't get into what Watergate entails, but Chuck Colson was a major actor in Watergate. He gets arrested, goes to prison, finds Jesus in prison, comes out, and he begins to testify to the fact that Watergate proved to him that the Bible is true. Now, doesn't that sound like a stretch? Let me tell you why he says this. Listen to this. Take it from one who was involved in conspiracy, who saw the frailty of man firsthand. There is no way that the 11 apostles who were with Jesus at the time of the resurrection could ever have gone around for 40 years proclaiming Jesus' resurrection unless it were true. You know what he says then? He goes, Watergate involved 10 of the most powerful men in all of North America. And he said, we could only keep our conspiracy going for three weeks. And it crumbled. And that became a testimony to him. He's like, listen, the fact that each of these apostles believed so so harshly that Jesus is who he says he is. He did die. He did raise from the grave. They said they believed it so much that they were willing to face death over it. It goes, believe me when I tell you, there is no conspiracy that any human could come up with, any organization could come up with that people would willingly die for like that. He goes, this proves to me Jesus is who he says he is. And, and God gives the apostles a portion of his power, and he sends them out. He commissions them, and they go, and, and they do exactly what they're told to do, and in the midst of doing it, most of them, with the exception of John, end up dying a martyr's death while obeying God's commission in their lives. But it begins the cycle of what will become the church. I want to talk to you next because there's somebody that comes into that mix of the apostles who was not part of the disciples. Any guesses who that is? Paul, there you go. You got it, right? And here's Paul. Hey, I want to give you Paul's story here in Acts chapter 26, verses 13 to 18. He's describing to a Roman official who he's on trial because they're, they're going to kill him. He's on trial and he's telling them about his own conversion. Here's what he says in Acts 26. I was on the road to Damascus and a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Who are you, Lord, I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness. Tell people you have seen me and tell them that I will show you in, what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. So they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Can you say set apart? Just hold that in your mind. We're going to get back to that in just a second. This is the essential change here. Paul, all right? Paul has a rich history here. A couple of things to just give you a little bit about him, all right? He's born in Tarsus, all right? He's a Roman citizen. But he grows up in the school of Gamaliel. Everybody knows what that is, right? 
It's like, just like Hickory. No. Gamaliel, all right, was a teacher of the religious law. So Saul grew up as a Pharisee. He was learning to be a Pharisee uh, from a young age. It literally starts around the age of eight years old when they go to this school for training. He's learning to be a Pharisee. He persecuted the early church. All right, he was there when Stephen was martyred. He says of himself that he went all over trying to hunt down Christians, persecuting them, throwing them in prison, and killing them for following Jesus because he had been trained his entire life. There is only one God, and his son has not yet come. The Messiah has not yet come to save us. But Paul is, is, is living this life until his conversion. God gets a hold of him through what we just read. And then Paul goes on to go on all these missionary journeys. He becomes an evangelist for the Lord. He writes several books of the Bible. And he goes on these journeys. He travels 10,000 miles in his lifetime to tell people about Jesus. Now, I know you're thinking, wow, frequent flyer miles. That's going to be great. No, there were no flights. He had to walk or ride a boat everywhere that he was going. And not a cruise liner, not the Royal Caribbean, some dinky little boat that was out across the ocean getting him 10,000 miles that he had to cover to be able to do these things. Ended up shipwrecked on Malta before he's finally captured, spends two years on house arrest in Rome, and then he is martyred for his faith in Jesus. You know, when I look at the life of Paul, and just as we did with Moses... Can I just, can I express to you a fleshly thought within me? I look at these individuals and I think, someone who gave so much for God, don't they deserve a better ending? Don't they deserve something for as much of themselves as they've given? I mean, come on. Paul traveled 10,000 plus miles to just tell people who had no idea who Jesus was, who Jesus is. I mean, you could arguably say that he was instrumental to the, the start of the early church. He goes through all these things, does everything that God has asked him to do, and you know where his life ends? In death, because he refused to recant his faith in Jesus. You know, I look at that and I think to myself, that's that fleshly thought, right? But I remember Paul's own words to the Corinthian church. You know, in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, you know, to be absent from this body is to be in the presence of God. And he goes on to tell them, I'm kind of torn about the whole thing, honestly. There's a part of me that would just love to go to heaven and be where God is. But I also know there's work that still has to be done here. And you know, I look at Paul's life and I'm thinking... What a terrible way for things to end. But for him, he looked at it and he said, I have run the race, I have fought the good fight, and now that all awaits me is the crown of glory which I will receive in heaven. Not, not I don't deserve this. I've given so much for Jesus. I've done so much for Jesus. I'm gonna die for Jesus? Are you kidding me? It's not his thought at all. He actually uses phrasing that connects to Roman uh, army men and, and officers and the way that they had conquered the region because when an officer, a general, would lead a campaign and march back into the city as a conqueror, they would come right down the city, right to the emperor's palace, and he would put a crown upon their heads and crown them for their accomplishments. And he's using this phrasing. He's saying, yeah, I spent my whole life telling people about Jesus and doing everything that God's done. You know what's left for me? A triumphal entry into heaven where God himself is gonna crown me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's enough for me. That's enough for me. 
Church, this is so essential because I think there's a temptation within each of us to question, well, if I do so much for God, don't I deserve so much from God? If I give and give of myself, shouldn't God give and give of himself a little bit for me, a little bit more comfort in this life or a little more of something? And and we look at Paul, we look at Moses, and here's the essential reality. A life lived for Jesus, no matter how long or short, is a life well lived. And that's what Paul said as he went to the grave. I've, I've run my race. I fought the fight. And all that's left for me is the crown because I did it. I persevered. And church, that's got to be enough for us as we look at this reality. So we have Jesus gives his power to the apostles. He commissions them, sends them out. Paul is a part of the apostles. He's doing all of this work. Then there's one last portion. This is where we're going to end the story because this is where you come into the story. Did you know you were in the story? You're part of what God is doing, all right? And here's where it comes in. I want to read this for you in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. Peter's writing to the early church, and and he's trying to help them to understand their true identity in Christ, and this is what he speaks to. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if, they see, if, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. This is when the church comes into being. Now, I'm, I'm not going to bore you with an entire Greek lesson, but I want to give you a little bit of background on where these words come from that we translate into English, okay? The Greek word for church is the word ekklesia, all right? We get the word ecclesial, ecclesiology from those words, right? Ekklesia. It is the combination of two words, okay? The first one will be really easy to say. In fact, I'll have you say it right now. It's ek. Simple, right? Ek means to call, right? So if you have to call your mom later, you're going to be like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to ek my mom. Your friends will be like, you're going to do what? Ek, all right, just means to call, all right? Now, the second part of the word is kaseo. Kaseo means out from, out from something, all right? So it's this combination of two words. It's called out from. And that's what the word ecclesia means, the church. And this is exactly what Peter speaks to when he says, you have been called out of darkness and into the light. You have been called to live lives that are set apart, consecrated, and different from the rest of the world because you are those who have been called out. You are the church. You are the church. You should look different, sound different, talk different, think different, act different, go different places, and abstain from different places because you are the church. And this is where our part of the story really begins to take shape. If I could get the worship team to begin to play, our, and our uh, board members, we're gonna get ready to take communion in just a few minutes just to get you unnoticed for that. This is where our part of the story really comes 
to the forefront. Because, let's take it back, all right? We've got the ministry and life of Jesus. He's doing all these incredible things. He's living and doing. He goes to the cross. He's resurrected. He comes back. He has this meeting with his disciples. He says, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm sending you. I'm commissioning you. You will be the ones who take the power and authority that I have into the world to reach the lost and the broken. The disciples, who are now the apostles, they go out into the world. They travel all over the known world at that point. They start teaching people about Jesus. Salvation through Jesus. Salvation through Jesus. And every time, they're calling more people out of darkness and into the light. They're building the church. They're building the church. They're building the church that when Peter and Jesus, and and they're all standing there together in Caesarea Philippi, and, and Peter makes this proclamation. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Jesus looks at him and he says, earthly wisdom has not revealed this to you, but your Father in heaven has revealed this. And I'm going to build a church out of that reality that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. That's what we're called out of and into. We are the church. Called out of darkness. Called into light. And, and look, look at the way that he defines us. I mean, these things that he says about, about God's people. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. You are God's very own special possession. This is an essential shift. Something that we have to understand in our own minds, our own relationship with God, is that we look and and for all of church history, for all of religious history in Judaism, the only ones who are God's people are those who were born in the tribes of Israel. They're God's people. Everybody else is on the outside looking in. And even Jesus has to explain to his own disciples during the time of his ministry, I didn't come just to save some. I came to save all. And I'm inviting people who don't even have an identity. I'm inviting generations of people who aren't anything without the identity in Christ, I'm inviting them to be my chosen people, my royal priests, my holy nation, my very own special possession. And then the church, those who have been called out of darkness and into light, it just explodes. I I mean, and I know I said this in the beginning, but we're far too quick to just glaze over what that means. How could one man saying he's the son of God in the tiny nation of Israel go on to start a movement that would now reach billions of people worldwide? How's that even possible? Except for the power of God working through the son of God imparted to the leaders, the apostles, to go out and to start the church. And then every generation after that, every generation after that, from the time of of the apostles, listen, the oldest apostle, which is John, they say died somewhere between 90 and 100 AD. We're not exactly sure, but that's a ripe old age at that point. 
Okay, he probably lived to be almost 100. From that moment on, every generation has been pushed forward by men and women who said, I am called out of darkness and into light. I am called out of darkness and into light. I'm going to live my life for Jesus. I'm going to lead others to Jesus. I'm going to raise my children to know Jesus. I'm going to serve among those who are called out so that others will know Jesus. I'm going to serve in my community so that others will know Jesus. I am set apart. I am different. I am no longer the same because the Spirit of the living God is inside of me and has transformed me and changed me and made me new. And with every passing generation, the men and women of God, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the chosen people that have gotten up and said, this is who I am, have been so spurred by just not cognitively thinking, yes, that's what I am. But it radically transformed their lives to the extent of, this is the life I'm going to live. Because I am the church. You know, we hear the word church, what comes to our mind? A building. Where do you go to church? What church are you a part of? What church did you grow up in? Well, I used to be a part of this church, but now I go to this church. I haven't gone to church in a long time. Or I've been going to this church my whole life. Or I go to church. We we talk about it time and time again. And every description that we give of it is tied to a building or a construct, an idea that we've created. Scripturally, God says this. My church is those who have been called out of darkness and into light. My church is not just in a building. It doesn't have its own name. It doesn't have its own ideas. My church aren't people who wear suits and ties or who wear jeans. They're not people who sing hymns or modern choruses. They're not people who sit on pews or who sit on the floor. My church is those who have been called out of darkness and into the light and who have accepted the invitation of Jesus' extended hand. He says, I see you in your brokenness. I'm calling you out of it. Don't you love that? I mean, look at how all of that flows and the way that God puts all the pieces together going all the way back to Genesis. Got a plan. You broke what I created. It was perfect. You messed it up. But I've got a plan. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send redemption. I'm going to send salvation. I'm going to send grace. I'm going to send a new covenant through the blood of my son. I'm going to save it. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to call you out. You're going to be scattered and all over the place. You're going to be broken. But I'm going to call you out. And then we become part of the story of what God's doing into the future. And church called out ones, it's our turn. We're here because family, friends, community members, generations of people, they stood up when it was their turn and they said, I will be set apart for Jesus. And we're here because of that. We wouldn't be a church if it wasn't for them. I will be set apart for Jesus. I will raise my kids for Jesus. I will reach my community for Jesus. Now it's our turn to be those who are called out to say, I'm going to be different from the rest of the world. I'm not going to look like they do, sound like they do, act like they do. I might not even be understood by them. 
but I want to live to the glory of God as one who is in the light. I want to invite our board members to get into place as we get ready to serve communion. Communion is something that we celebrate because Paul himself wrote to the Corinthian church, and we'll read it in just a moment together. But he says to them, I received something from God. A new covenant through the blood of his son Jesus. Through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, I received something from God. And I want to pass it on to you. And then in turn, you know, we can sometimes think, well, that's where the story stops. God gave, we received. God gave, we receive. But just as it has always been, there comes that moment where I have received, now I must give. I have to give to my neighbors. I have to give to my coworkers. I have to give to my family members. I have to give to strangers. I have to give, I get to give to the next generation, children, teenagers. I get to give to seniors at Jefferson on the Lakes. I get to give because I'm part of the church. Not just an expression of faith in a building with a name, but I'm part of those who have been called out of darkness and I'm living in the light of Jesus. Church, it's our turn. But I want to ask you to bow your heads as we get ready to close up our time together and just to pray with you. There's a reality of a first step that has to be done in order to be those who are called out of darkness and into light. And it's this moment in which Jesus extends his hand and he says, I'm calling you. Will you take my hand? Will you accept my gift of mercy and my gift of salvation? Will you accept those things and let me pull you out from where you've been so that I can lead you into where you're going? And if you haven't done that before, or maybe you did it once in your life, but you're, you're, you know in yourself, there have been a lot of miles since then, some things that have gotten messed up over the years. And I want to accept Jesus' extended hand this morning to me. That's you. Can I just ask you to slip up a hand because I want to pray with you this morning. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I want to lead you in a prayer because five, six people raised their hand and they said that that's where their heart is this morning. And if it was one, it'd be worth it. But I want to ask you to pray this with me as we pray together to ask Jesus into our hearts so that we can accept his extended hand to us. So you pray this, Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to die for me, to take my sins and to take my wrong place in this life. Come into my heart and into my life. Be my savior. Call me out of darkness and into the light. In Jesus' name. The second thing I want to ask you is if you're here this morning is to make a bold proclamation. Because in a second, we're going to take this time to celebrate communion together. But when we do so, I wanted to do it with this level of sobriety. That we are accepting this commission to be those who are called out of darkness and into the light. And I want to ask you to make a public statement as you do this together this morning. 
And if you're here this morning and you say, I want to live my life for Jesus. I want to embrace this commission that God has given to me for this time, this place, and in my time. Because others have done it before me. But this is my time to stand up and say, I will live as one who is called out of darkness and into light. If that's you, I want to ask you to stand up this morning. It is a bold proclamation. But it's our turn. It's our turn. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. We're at a point in history where he could come back this afternoon. But he may wait for another 50 years. But it's our turn and it's our time to be the generation that says I'm called out and I'm living for Jesus. I want to invite you to come and we're going to take the emblems together and when everyone has been served, we're going to take communion together. But that's going to be the attitude with which we take communion today is not just those who receive, but those who are making the promise to give and say, God, I'm going to live for your glory. Would you come and be served this morning?
nation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. capture the essence of what it means to live for Christ in those two statements you are the king of kings you are my everything right there captures all of it in two statements I believe that you are who you say you are and I'm going to live my life as one who believes that you are who you say you are and that's what we celebrate as we take communion together this morning is this not just a statement in our minds, but by faith that says, I believe you are the Son of God and that you've called me out of darkness and into light. Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, I pass unto you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Paul's saying, I got invited to the Last Supper. I got invited to sit at the table where Jesus was, where he offered himself to his disciples. I got invited to that table, and I'm inviting you to that table. Invite others to that table that we should always be gathered around, realizing that Jesus gave himself 
allowing his body to be broken so that our part of the story could say, made whole. What a gift. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son, this ransom that you paid for our sin. Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross and allowing your body to be broken so that we could be made whole. We thank you and give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. Father, as we take the cup today, it's not just in ceremony, but in covenant with you, in which we declare that we are the people who have been called out of darkness and into light, that we will live as your chosen people, your royal priesthood, your holy nation, a people set apart for your glory, not by any acts that we have done on our own, but by the blood of Jesus, which has washed us and made us whole. And for that, Lord, we give you glory in Jesus' name. Let's take the cup together. God, we are so grateful for the gift of salvation that you have given to us. We are so grateful, God, that you extended your hand to us and said, I'm calling you out of darkness and into the light. And God, I pray that we would be the church, not just the people who go to church or who are part of a church or a member of a church, but that we would live as those who are called out of darkness and into light. We would be the church for your glory. Father, as we go today, I pray that we would do so commissioned through the same words that you gave to your disciples. Go into the world and make disciples, teach them, raise them up, strengthen them, show them that you've discovered a Savior who's worth dying for and worth living for. I pray, God, that we will go with that commission today, empowered by your Spirit to reach a world in our time, in our place, and in this generation, where we boldly proclaim, I will stand and live for Jesus. And we love you, Lord, and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, as you go, do so with that great commission. God has called you out of darkness. Live in the light for his glory and lead others to that light. Our prayer team will be up here at the front. We'd love to meet with you if you need prayer this morning. If you're visiting, we'd love to meet you at our welcome banner. Lord bless you. Have a wonderful day as you give glory to God.